0: So i like to stay up to date with what's going on, but you get to a point where you realize, I don't know what I'm going to see the next time I open an app or turn on the TV. And, and we recognize in these last days that the news is less good and more bad, as evidenced this week in Florida with yet another school shooting and the loss of so many young lives. And I, I know as, as my heart is breaking, your heart is breaking for our nation Uh, for those families and for that school affected in Florida and Parkland. Um, So I want to take time to pray this morning for Florida, to pray pray for the the families, the people, the students affected, and and the repercussions of this, the fear. One of the things that we hear about is that there's just this pervasive fear throughout the nation, uh, especially within our kids, about their lives being threatened in a place that really should be a place of safety within the school environment. I was thinking about uh, history, and we're going to talk a little bit about history this morning. Throughout history, throughout the history of the world, biblical history, one of the marks of an onslaught or kind of a push of the enemy against God's chosen people is the attack on children. It's a consistent point that, that in the Old Testament, the New Testament, through even more recent history, the targeting of children is reflective of John 10.10 when Jesus says that the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And we were reminded this week that that stealing, killing, and destroying is not figurative. It is literal. It is literal. And so we are living in the midst of a time. We are in the end times. Jesus is coming back for his church, and the enemy knows it, and it is his only task to sow sow and, and, and and. and cause havoc in the world around us. I want to pray for our children specifically this morning. Pray for our children as a nation. So would you bow with me as we pray? Father God, we, we have the promises of your word. And we have sang, sang about the promises of your word. You'll never let us down. Is absolutely true. But Lord, we also know that the promises and the prophetic word of your word is this. That in these end times that things will get darker, not lighter. And so God, I pray as a church that we are fully equipped to be the light in the midst of the darkness. Lord, this week in our nation, we experienced darkness as the lives of children were targeted and snuffed out. And Lord, we call it for what it is, the nefarious, devious, evil plan of the enemy to bring about destruction in the world and to to sow fear in the hearts of lives. God, we pray over our children. We pray over the children of this nation. God, that they would turn to you as their, as their hearts, Lord, are, are, are struggling. Lord, that there would be a turning to you and the empowering that comes from your Holy Spirit. That our children would be able to stand strong. I pray, Lord, that there would be protection, a hedge of protection that is set up around our kids. As the enemy goes about his plans, Lord, that there would be a generation of righteous young men and women who would stand up and oppose his onslaught. God, I pray that we as a church here at Thrive Church and across this nation, Lord, would take our stand in the spirit, that we would take our stand, Lord, as Paul says, Lord, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they are spiritual. And so we would take our stand in the spirit and that we would cast down and pull down every stronghold and every lie that sets, it up, sets itself up against your holy and righteous name. God, we pray for uh, safety and healing and protection, Lord, and, and comfort over the families and over the people whose lives have been affected by the shooting this week. As they navigate the, the loss, the emotions, the fear, the post-traumatic stress, and everything else that comes with it, God, Lord, that that your love and your peace would so invade their lives. I pray that that, that the believers in that community would rise up and that there would be testimonies that emerge from the stories in the aftermath of your goodness and your faithfulness as your people reach out in compassion. We pray these things in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, this ties right into where we're going this next few weeks. Uh, starting a series this morning on the armor of God, the armor of God. Uh, It's a six-week series. There's six pieces of the armor that we're going to talk about, but we're not going to get to actually talking about the individual pieces of the armor of God until next week because we've got to do some introductions. So uh, we actually have six Sundays until Easter, which is pretty crazy. Uh, And so my math, I'm like, well, that's six pieces of armor Six Sundays, so we're gonna have to double up on one Sunday, uh, probably next week, and talking about the belt and the breastplate. The series title is Stand. Initially, I had titled the the, the series Armor of God, uh, and it's appropriate, but the Lord just kept stirring my heart and speaking to me about not focusing so much on the instruments, but the goal of those instruments. Why do we have the armor, what is the purpose of the armor? The armor exists for us to be able to stand. So let's take a look at Ephesians 6. In fact, if you want to open up to the book of Ephesians, uh, we're going to be drawing most of our passages out of that book this morning, uh, and really the letter to the Ephesians, and so we'll jump around. But, but if you want to turn to Ephesians 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 10, that would be great. I'll be reading out of the NIV. The words will be up on the screen as well for you. It says this in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We see this emphasis that Paul has here, and as he's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus and uh, and to the surrounding churches, that they need to take their stand. In fact, in verse 10 there it says, Finally, And in in my my preparation and in my study, I was just going to focus on, This paragraph and that word finally started really bothering me. Because Paul is sharing a concluding thought in light of everything he said prior to what he's saying right now. And so for us to really get a full perspective of what Paul is talking about and why the armor of God is so important and what that stand is, we need to understand what precedes the finally. We have to know what comes Before, But but he does make that emphasis. He says it four times, and he says it in other places in the letter as well. Stand. You need to stand. The picture here, of course, is that of a soldier taking, not just standing up physically, but taking a stand. Pushing back against the enemy. We use that language in warfare. It was their last stand. It was that place, the battle was at its, at its fiercest, and, and, and the army, the t- soldiers, the battalion or the group, they took their stand, they made their stand on that beach or on that mountainside, on that cliff. It's where they made their stand, they took their stand, and they started pushing the enemy back. It's the picture here that Paul wants us to understand is, is that as believers, we have to take a stand. We have to take a stand. A soldier is not effective on the ground. A soldier has to be standing, has to be ready, has to be prepared for the battle that is coming. And the battle is coming. The battle is coming. I love history. I I enjoy watching things like the... Well, I used to watch the History Channel. Now, like, History Channel's not so much about history. It's more about, like, ghosts and weird stuff. I'm like, how is that historical? Back when the History Channel really was the History Channel, uh, I really enjoyed watching shows about history. And, in fact, our family, we just kind of have this, this bent towards this enjoyment of watching uh, documentaries, historical documentaries, um, especially for me, it was growing up. I, I love watching documentaries about World War II. There was a whole series of DVDs that came out. Remember those DVDs that were like little discs you put in a machine? Um, and I watched it. It was the, the world at war, and it was pretty amazing. And this whole historical treatment, looking at the history uh, behind World War II or other things in, in history, I enjoy learning about the events and and the, 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 the people and the situations that have shaped the world that we live in. In fact, it's said that if we ignore history, we're doomed to repeat it. Because there's clues in history about uh, the nature and the heart of man and the way that the decisions we make and the way we do things. And sometimes we do it the wrong way. And we need to learn from that. And so the study of history is important. We know that because we t- learned it in school, right? Any history buffs in the house? Anyone's like, yeah. Anyone agree with me about History Channel? Yeah, you're like, I think we should sign a petition or something. There's so often hidden clues as we study history. There's things that we don't realize, that we don't see behind the surface that cause things to happen. The reasons why things played out the way they did, the, the people that were involved, or the situations, or the engagements, or the conversations, or the meetings that took place that shaped our history, the, the finances, the economies. And, you know, I, I lived in South Africa, which, I, and I grew up there. Well, South Africa became a colony after the Dutch East India Company discovered that they could sail around the the bottom of Africa to get to India for the spice because spice in those days was big bucks, right? A lot of money. And so they established Cape Town as a a halfway point from uh, Europe to to India. Uh, You wouldn't know that unless you studied the history. And so there's these little clues, and it's the job of historians. It's the job of archaeologists. It's the job of theologians, and can I suggest this morning's it's your job and it's my job as well to do the work of digging and the work of discovery. It was neat in Israel to watch. Uh, there were some active digs going on when I had the opportunity to visit there. And, you know, and it's the whole deal. They've got the little canopy and the cool vests and the outfits and the little brushes. And it really is the way that you see in the movies and stuff. And they're, they're discovering. And, and you, get, you see these archaeologists. They just get super, super, super excited when they make a discovery. Uh, they'll, they'll turn, there was a stone in the city of Dan, uh, there was question as to whether or not King David had ever really been to the city of Dan, and, and, and had questioned some of the biblical history there about the city of Dan. And just recently, in the last few years, they were, they were doing a dig, and there was a student from the U.S., an archaeology student, who came and flipped over the stone, and it turned out what was looked like a paving stone was actually like a tablet, and engraved on the back of this tablet, the stone was a record of the fact that King David had sat on the throne in the city of Dan. Well, they just lost it. Like, like our tour guide, who's an archaeologist, he was sharing with us, and he was just reliving the whole experience all over again because there was this clue that then confirmed so much. It is our job, not just archaeologists and historians and theologians, to do the work of digging and understanding the history of where we've come from, especially in regards to the Bible especially in regards to the Bible. We encourage people, I encourage people, read your Bible. Absolutely, be in the Word. You have to be in the Word. The danger is this, is that we can take passages out of context. We can read a verse or two and then apply it to our lives and go, see, the Bible says, well, that's not accurate. In fact, in Bible college, we call that bad hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is simply that, is the process of digging and discovering and uncovering what is actually being said and what's going on. This is what I want to do. It's the lens I want us to have as we look at the book of Ephesians this morning. So we are all going to be historians and theologians. We're not going to be archaeologists today. Unless you really want to, you can go dig in the dirt later. Um, But we're going to take a closer look at the book of Ephesians because that word finally... Requires that we do. It requires that we do. We can't just jump into the armor until we understand why the armor is needed, and what the stand is that Paul is writing about. So we're going to examine over these next few weeks uh, the book of Ephesians, specifically the armor, but I want us to give to have some background this morning. You know when you're in school, right, the questions that you have to ask? Who? What? When, where, why, and how, right? Essentially, that is hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the study of Scripture that takes into account the history, the authorship, the audience, the grammatical style, and all kinds of other things that are contained within the Scripture, There's books of poetry, there's historical books, there's prophetic books, there's the gospels, there's the Pauline epistles, letters written by Paul to the churches in that time, which is what Ephesians is a part of. There are pastoral epistles written by other of the New Testament leaders. There's there's all kinds of grammatical styles and, and, and styles of writing in the Bible, and so we can't just read them all the same way. We understand that Psalms is a book of poetry and songs, and so we have to take it as such. And Each one of these questions gives us a clue as to what the intent was, what the the, the meaning was, and, and why this letter would have been written. In this case, the letter was written, and then after we've examined all of that, we can start drawing conclusions and making application in our own lives. And you say, well, that seems like a lot of work. It is. <laughs> it is. But I've got to tell you right now, there are some great tools available to help you with this. You can hop online. There's a website called BibleStudyTools.net. It's totally free, and you can hop on there, and you can look stuff up. You can, you can do some research. You can look into the history. If you want to know more about how to do some of that, I'd love to, to sit with you and walk you through some of those processes. But, but even just in a just a daily reading of Scripture, to have that kind of frame set, that mindset. Who was this written to? Why was it written? A lot of your Bibles will have in the beginning of a book a little introduction that addresses and answers some of those questions. Check it out. Gain a little bit more understanding of why this book and why this letter is in the Bible. Does that sound good? All right. It's a little bit of introduction. So, when we come to the book of Ephesians, we call it a book. It was a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul, not just to the church in Ephesus. Uh, the, the original manuscripts and the earliest manuscripts that we have of this letter actually leave out the name Ephesus. And, and here's why. Paul wrote it as what was called a cyclical letter. It was a letter that was meant to be circulated around the churches in that area specifically the seven churches that we see listed in the book of the Revelation, right? Ephesus, Smyrna, we've got Laodicea, we've got all these churches that are in Philadelphia, all of these churches are in that, in that region, and, and Paul wrote this letter and said, okay, this letter has to be circulated but it came to be known as the letter to the Ephesians or the church in Ephesus. We understand that it was a larger group that he was writing to. It's an epistle. In, in what that basically means, it was a personal letter from a leader in the church to the church as a whole. Epistles were written to people. They were written to groups of leaders or to the church as a whole. You ought to remember that uh, for the early church, they didn't have this. They didn't have this. Uh, so, so their encouragement, their word was was word of mouth. So Paul actually spent three years in the church of Ephes, in the church in Ephesus. It was one of the places where he spent the longest span of time. Uh, as a result, he was very close with the people and with the church in Ephesus, with the leadership and and with the members of that that group of churches. You can read about that in the book of Acts. He talks quite a bit about being in Ephesus. He was there on two different occasions, and he. Talk very fondly about them. So he writes this letter to them, this epistle to them, uh, as the purpose of it is this, an encouragement to the church. He writes it as an encouragement to the church and also to equip them. He writes it to the church to equip them, saying, listen, I've got some things I need to share with you about what the church of Jesus Christ is all about. About. In fact, Ephesians in the scripture is the most complete work that we have in regards to one of the early church leaders giving instruction to the body of believers on how they should act and live. Ephesians is kind of a go-to for pastors. I love reading Ephesians because it encourages me and helps equip me in the role that I have. But the reality is as Ephesians is for all of us because Paul wrote the letter not just to the leadership But he wrote it to the whole body. And so there's things that we can take from that. So encouragement and equipping of the church. The major theme, and there's one major, absolutely major theme. If you're taking notes, you can write this in all caps and underline it uh, in the book of Ephesians. And it is the word unity. It is the word unity. Paul addresses unity more than anything else in the book of Ephesians. It is absolutely his goal, his desire that after reading this letter, that there would be this understanding about unity in the church. Specifically, unity in Christ, and then unity within the body. The unity of the spirit, as Paul calls it, and then the unity of the body of Christ. This is the overarching theme of the entire Letter, okay, and this is important for us to keep in mind when we start talking about the armor of God. Because remember, that finally sets us up for what we have to take our stand with and in and against, right? And you see how that connects. If the theme of the whole book is unity, what are we taking our stand for? Unity. What are we taking our stand against? Division in the body of Christ super important for us. Now, if we just jumped into the armor of God, uh, we wouldn't necessarily get that out of that. Now, that doesn't mean it's less impactful or important, but it gives us some clues as to what Paul's goal is here. You know, one of the things I've noticed in my life is that I can come to the armor of God and I can treat it like, like the utensils in my kitchen, right? Oh, today I need this piece, Today, I, uh, you know, I need the meat cleaver. Tomorrow, I need, like, the paring knife. For this job, I'll need this instrument, and for that, I'll need the blender, right? We kind of piecemeal the armor out, thinking that they're separated, that they each have a singular function, uh, but they can be used independently. The reality is, is the armor of God cannot function that way. It has to function as a whole. The idea that an, a, a soldier would say, you know, today, I'm just going to take my shield, I'm just gonna go with the shield. Like, you know, I, I feel like I just need to have more faith today, so I'm just gonna grab the shield and head out into my day. We would call that foolish or even deadly. And so the idea is this is that the, the soldier would be fully equipped with all of the armor. And so when we understand the theme and the major purpose of Paul writing this book, it gives us motivation to say, okay, that's why I need all of the other stuff. I'm getting a little bit of a ha- ahead of myself, but, but we capture that image. Right, The Roman soldier, by the way, in Ephesus, that city was a major trading port. It was on the Aegean Sea. It was a crossroads. It was a melting pot. There were so many people coming through there. Uh, there were Greeks. There were Jews. There were people of all kinds of nationalities. There were tradespeople. There were people who were originally from that place. Uh, one of the, the, the unique things about the city of Ephesus is they had one of the seven wonders of the early world was right there in that city, and was the temple of Artemis, the goddess Artemis, or Diana, who is the, the god of, goddess of fertility. And so here's what we know, historically, not just from scripture, but from historical record, about Ephesus. There was a lot of money changing hands. There's a lot of money. We know that there were people that loved to be entertained. They had a massive theater. I believe it sat like 65,000 people in this theater that was carved into the mountainside. Uh, In fact, we read about that theater when some of the disciples are pulled in there and accused of stirring up uh, dissension in the midst of the city. We know that there was a lot of uh, focus on sex in that city because of Diana and because of that temple. And so a lot of people would travel there and, and enjoy themselves in that city right? And so there's money, there's there's pleasure, there's there's sex. Sound familiar? Right? And so these are some of the things that, that are happening in the city as Paul and as the early church is established, then there's a thriving, flourishing church that is established. But there were troubles, there were challenges that they faced in the midst of this place. And so one of the things that they would have seen on a regular basis in that city were Roman soldiers, because it was a part of the Roman Empire. And so the, the, the image of the Roman soldier and the armor of the Roman soldier was familiar to everybody. Everyone was familiar with it. And so it's interesting to, to read how Paul uses that imagery, and he uses it in other places, in other writings. But this is the most complete use that we see of Paul using the armor of God, or the, the picture of the armor, because everyone would have understood it, and understood that it wasn't piecemeal, you had to take on the whole armor in order to be effective. They had experienced that firsthand. I want to make five points this morning, and I want to talk about the major messages within the book of Ephesians, in the letter to the Ephesians. The purpose of writing the letter was to address unity. But then Paul goes into five specific areas where he unpacks some thoughts and ideas that address uh, that, that major theme in smaller chunks. And that's what I want to focus on for the next few minutes this morning. And we'll end with that. We'll talk about the belt of truth next Sunday. But this is kind of the setup. It's the, the prequel, if you will, to the armor and what comes next. So the first thing is this. The first major message in the book of Ephesians, starting right in chapter 1, is this. It's God's ultimate purpose. God's ultimate purpose. We've already sang about that today. We've talked about that today. We've prayed about that today. That God has a plan. And he has a purpose. And that plan and that purpose predates you. It predates your life. It predates your time on this planet. It predates even the church in Ephesus. That going all the way back to the foundations of the earth. That God had a plan. Has a plan. And is working his plan. Jesus coming to earth. And living the life that he did was a critical part of that plan. And so Paul addresses God's ultimate purpose in the book of Ephesians, this letter to the Ephesians. Because it's so important for us always to remember and always to have at the forefront of our mind that God is in control. God is in control. He's never not in control. There's never a point in our lives, in our story, in the world around us where where God goes, oh, didn't see that coming. How did I miss that one? Never, never, ever, that God is ultimately in control and He has a purpose. We see this in Ephesians one, verse seven through ten. Paul writes this: In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished. I love say lavished, lavished, lavished on you. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to, put into it, to, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring, in, bring to unity all things, or bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. See, what happened in the Garden of Eden was that the unity that existed between man and God was broken because of sin. Unity stopped being a thing. There was brokenness and there was division, not just between God and man, but now between man and man. There was enmity and strife and war. And God's ultimate plan and his ultimate purpose was not division, it was unity and is unity. And so God's ultimate purpose is expressed here is that through Jesus Christ, all things, which includes everything, nothing's left out, that all things would be brought into unity under Christ, on heaven, in heaven and on earth. When Jesus prayed, your will be done in, on earth as it is in heaven, that is a reflection of, of God's purpose Father, that you want unity to exist here on earth and in heaven, and and that unity would exist under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so Paul takes time to remind the Ephesians, to remind the church, hey, this is important. This is important for you as believers. This is important for you as a church, because the enemy is going to try and tell you something different. He's going to lie to you and tell you, no, there's another way. That it's okay to kind of do your own thing, to go your own direction, to plan your own purpose, to, to you pave your own way, right? It's, it's my life to make my mark. No, no, no. It's God's life to bring under his submission and his authority to align our lives with his plan and his purpose. Was he a dictator? Not at all. He's never going to force you to do that. But it's an invitation for us to step into his plan and his purpose. I remember when I was young, The Berlin Wall came down. Who remembers that? Anyone remember watching that? Right? President Reagan saying to Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And now we know that that was a moment in history. There was a lot of other conversations, right? It wasn't just because he said those words. But it definitely was a stake in the ground. It was a moment in history where the world was going, this is not okay, this is not okay. This wall separating East and, and West Germany, this wall, the symbol of communism, it has to stop. And through the courageous leadership of some people in that time, that wall came down and, and, and uh, people like keep pieces of that wall. They have them all over the world sitting on shelves as a reminder of the fact that, that we're not supposed to be bringing div- division, but, but we're supposed to be bringing unity that we need to tear down the walls. Jesus tore down the wall that had been built between us and God. God's ultimate purpose in the church was to tear down walls, not to build them up. The next thing that Paul focuses on is this, that Christ is absolutely and always at the center of the life of the believer and the life of the church. Christ is central to who. We are Ephesians 1, and 23. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Without Jesus, we have nothing. Without Jesus, we are nothing. And that Christ doesn't want to be Lord of parts of our lives, He wants to be Lord of all of our lives, over every part of who we are. And if Jesus stops being central to our walk and to our existence, we will get dissuaded, we will get distracted, we will be veered off course, and we will start believing, as Paul says in other places, we will believe the lie. We will believe the deception. If Jesus is not central to who we are as the believer, as a believer, and as the church... We will believe other things. It's one of the reasons that the vision statement for our church is helping people thrive in Christ. Because he is absolutely central to everything we are and everything we do. He is our Lord. He is our King. He is our Savior. He is our all in all. And we cannot and should not ever imagine or try to imagine or be enticed to imagine life without him. It's a dangerous road. It's a slippery slippery slope. Third thing is this Paul addresses the living church with Christ as the head. The living church with Christ as the head. The world at that point in time was marked by serious serious division. You had the division of Jew and Gentile when it came to Judaism and that 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 the particular faith. You were either Jew or you were Gentile, you were in or you were out, and there was no middle ground, right? Jews did not associate with Gentiles, and that's just the way that it was. But there were other things, right? There were, there were Greeks, there were Romans, there were all manner of people, especially in Ephesus, passing through, plying their trades, trading their, their goods. You had the soldiers, you had the military who took a stand in those communities, the strong ones. The ones that were feared. And so there's so much division in the world at that time. Here in Greek, especially, you had those who, the Greeks were thinkers. It's Paul, even when he goes to, uh, to, to Athens, and he debates and argues with the big thinkers of the time, right? We remember names like Aristotle and Socrates, Right? They were the thinkers, and so there were the really brilliant people, and then there was just the common man. All of these divisions, man versus woman, slave versus free, division, division, wall, 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 wall. And, and Paul says to the church that, listen, we're not that way anymore. That's not who we are, that we don't live in accordance to the way of the world. We don't, we don't take our cues from the culture around us. He says in Ephesians two fourteen through 16, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and it has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. That the work of Jesus in the body of Christ was to remove the obstacles and remove the divisions and remove the things that would separate us from each other. Here specifically dealing with the Jew and the Gentile, but in other parts of the letter, he addresses all of those other groups of people as well. And he says, listen, your temptation as a church is going to be this. You're going to look at the world around you and go, well, it's okay for us to do this in the church because it's a part of the culture. It's okay for us to make these decisions or treat people a certain way because, you know, it's just the culture that we live in. And unfortunately, that has become the mark of Western Christianity or one of the marks of Western Christianity is that we take our cues too often from the culture Rather standing in a place of being counterculture to saying, you know what, we're not of this world, we're not of this kingdom, we don't take our cues from this culture, that we are to influence the culture with the kingdom of God. We're supposed to look like no one else around us. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to me that this is a major battle in the hearts and minds of believers today. That I, I don't want to stand out, I don't want to be a weirdo, right? Right? I don't want to be labeled. Man, if I'm being labeled for Jesus, label me all over. Label me all over. Because I walk under the authority of Jesus Christ, not in fear of the culture of this world. Ephesians 4 verse 16 says this, From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Such a great picture that we as the body of Christ have to be united because if we're not, we cannot function in the same way that my body, if if my arm is separated from my body, I cannot function. Not only that, I'm going to be in extreme pain, right? Hello? Hello? If one of your parts of your body is even your little toe. Come on, how many of you stubbed your little toe before, right? And it's like your whole body hurts. Your whole, you're like, how is the top of my head hurting right now? It's just my little toe. Why? Because the body is designed that way. And when there's the, the separation comes, we not only do not function and lose our effectiveness, we hurt. It hurts. And so the lordship and headship of Christ is displayed in the way that we live and function as the body of Christ. If we are the body of Christ, and Jesus is our head, if he is the, the, right, my big fat Greek wedding, anyone, right? The man is the head, but the woman is the neck, right? It's not like that, but that just popped in my head. Christ is the head. He is the authority, and we are under his authority and under his lordship. And we have to submit ourselves to that because when his headship directs us in a certain direction and tells us which way we need to go, right? If my left leg is like, I want to go that way and my right leg went that way, right. this is a problem. Right. And it looks funny. <laughs> when the body of Christ under the seeming headship of Jesus, when we stop submitting ourselves to the headship and part of the body goes this way and part of the body goes that way, it looks Funny to the world. It looks weird. It looks contorted. It looks messed up. And guess what? It's not their job. It's not the world's job to tell us how to follow Jesus. It's our job to submit ourselves as a part of the body of Christ and say, I am under his headship. And I need to stand aligned with who Jesus is in my life. And I need to figure out how it is that I'm connected to the whole and then stay connected to the whole. And can we just agree that's a daily battle, at least for me it is, because so often my heart and my flesh want my heart, what, what my heart and my flesh want without real consideration for other people, let alone for the headship of Jesus Christ in my life. Under this covering, Paul writes about in Ephesians 4, the function of the fivefold ministry in the church. He names in Ephesians 4 the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. And he talks about how this fivefold these, these five offices or functions within the body of Christ exist for this purpose. For the building up and the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. I've got to tell you, I love that verse. I love that verse. It requires a lot of me as a pastor... But I also love it because it's a reminder to me that it's not my ministry. It's your ministry. You're the ministers. And that Jesus, with that covering, with that authority, and that, with that headship, says that we need to be built up. We need to grow in our strength, understanding what he's called us to, being a part of the local body of Christ so that we can be equipped and then released to do the work that God has called us to. It's an amazing and beautiful picture. For those of you who are math whizzes. Anyone like equations? Anyone like, I love equations. All right, I've got an equation for you. It goes this way. It's a, it's a word problem. All the kids are like, come on. <laughs> Unity plus maturity under God's authority equals effective ministry. Unity plus maturity under God's authority equals effective ministry. We can't, we can't do it without all of those com- components being a part of it. And so we have to submit ourselves. You know, Paul mixes metaphors, which in English is not a good thing, right? We get, can get confusing. But in the book of Ephesians, man, he just he talks about the body. He talks about the family. He talks about a tree being rooted and established. He talks about a bride, right? And then he talks about a soldier, and there's all kinds of metaphors going on. And it's like, okay, Paul, pick a metaphor and stick with it. But I think his, I, his whole purpose here is to paint a complete picture. And it gives everyone the opportunity, because I might relate more to the picture of the soldier and less to another picture. But, but Paul's idea is that I, get, I want everyone to get this. I don't want anyone to miss the importance of what this is. That last one, though, when he ends with, finally stand with the armor of God, he punctuates it in talking about our role as soldiers in the kingdom of God. Understanding that an army of one is not an army. I know that was like a slogan, right, for the army here. An army of one is not an army. An army, by definition, is multiple people coming together, standing shoulder to shoulder. See, the effectiveness of an army depends... On the individual members being equipped and trained. Taking up the weapons of their warfare. And then standing shoulder to shoulder in unity with each other. And responding as one to the directives of the commander. I read that again? The effectiveness of an army depends on the individual members. You and me. Being equipped and trained. And then taking up the weapons of our warfare standing shoulder to shoulder in unity with each other as we respond as one to the directives of our commander. These things all have to be in place. So by the time Paul gets to talking about the armor of God, this is the picture that he's painted, that we cannot be fractured, we cannot be divided, we cannot walk in a way that says, oh, I love my brother when I don't. When I allow things to settle in my heart that are not of the Lord, but then expect to be effective in that. Paul says, don't bother them with the armor of God. Because this is where we take our stand. This is powerful for us. Number four is this. Paul addresses the new family of God. He addresses the new family of God. Ephesians two nineteen through 20. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers the fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Another metaphor going on here. That we are no longer foreigners and strangers. That we're now citizens of heaven and not only that, we're not just citizens. We're not resident aliens. We are Members of his household. He talks in another part of the book about adoption. That we were predestined to be adopted into the family of God. That we're no longer on the outside looking in. But that we are part of this new family of God. That is diverse. And it's beautiful. That it's representative of heaven. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people, every age group. That's this new family of God. And it stood in stark contrast to the world and the culture in Ephesus and that surrounding area. See, because those lines of distinction were very, very clear in that culture. But within the church, Paul is saying there cannot be any of these lines of distinction or division. That we have to be one as the body, as this new family. By the way, he uses the word one. 17 times in the book of Ephesians. 17 times. We understand this in scripture and from from that grammatical understanding of, you know, why was it written and how was it written. If a writer is using the same word over and over and over and over again, probably a good thing to pay attention to what he's saying in that regard. There is no division. So he says there's no more Jew and Gentile. There's no more Jew and Gentile. There's no more male and female. Does that mean that everyone's the... No, it's not sameness. Can I just tell you right now? Unity is not sameness. It's one of the lies I believe the enemy has perpetrated on our culture in in wanting people to, to feel like they have equality, that we push people towards sameness. We're not the same. How boring would that be if we were all the same? Male and female are not the same. But our diversity is to be celebrated. Our cultures, our languages, everything that makes us different under Christ is the thing that kind of binds us together and is celebrated. But there's no more division. There's no more, well, if you're a man, you're over here, and a woman, you're over there. No, in the body of Christ, we all fit. We all have that place. No more slave or free. Everyone is the same. All are one in Christ. And He is the same Lord over the church today as He was then. And church, it's so critical for us to understand this. And not just to know it, but to get it in our hearts. That in this place, in this expression of the body of Christ, that we cannot look down or separate or push aside or devalue Or think one has more to offer than another because we are then tearing at the very fabric of what makes us believers in Jesus Christ. We are all one as this new family. I love all my kids. I don't love one of my kids more than the other. I just love my kids, right? Come on. I love my kids. And I have different relationships with my kids, but I never go, well, I love this one more than that one. Because that's not the heart of the Father. And if He doesn't treat us that way, we have no place to do that to each other. And then finally, He addresses Christian living and conduct Christian living and conduct. Covers a lot of ground in six chapters. Ephesians 4, 1-3, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Be patient. Be patient. <laughs> Bearing with one another in love. Make, listen to this church, make every effort Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort, which by the way, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. It's why the gospel of peace is the sandals. Because to live in peace means I've actually got to move and do something. And it it compels me, not just to evangelize my community, but to live in one with my brothers and sisters and to be reconciled. Paul addresses the importance of our Christian faith affecting every part of our lives. And he goes into detail. I don't have time this morning to touch on all of them, but he does deal with marriage. He speaks about marriage. He talks about parenting in the book of Ephesians. He talks about the relationship between an employer and an employee and vice versa. He touches on so many different aspects. I actually have homework. I'm going to give you homework this week. Um, if you have the Bible app, uh, get the book of Ephesians. Go to the book of Ephesians, and then just try listen to the the, the whole book as it, just kind of as one cohesive thought. By the way, when Paul wrote the letter to the the church in Ephesus, he did not put in chapters and verses, right? And and it actually it doesn't serve us well because we get to the end of chapter one and we're like, okay, done, and we move it aside. And and when you read a letter, right, if Or an email. Um, You don't get to the end of one paragraph and go, okay, I'm done with that thought. Let's kind of set that aside. No, you read it as a whole. Am I right? With Scripture, the problem with our chapter and verse divisions is that we start seeing them as individual thoughts, and they're not. There's a cohesive picture that Paul is trying to paint. And one of the easiest ways I found to, to kind of get some clues and do a little bit digging is to listen to it rather than read it. And just listen to the book of Ephesians through a few times. And, and I've said this before, don't read it, let it read you. Let it start uncovering maybe things in your life. If you were in Ephesus and Paul was writing this letter to you, what were the things or what could be some of the things that stir in your heart? You're like, ooh, right? As my friend Alan says, ouch, bro, <laughs> right? You're like, ouch, Paul, come on. Because there's so much contained. And so rather than us spending the next hour, because we've got to go, <laughs> unpacking some of that, we realize that Paul deals with Christian living and conduct, and there's actually a way that God expects us to live our lives as believers. That our witness and our testimony to each other and to the world will be effective by, affected by the decisions we make and the way we live our lives, in public and in private. In public and in private. Because the enemy knows what you do in private, even if the people around you don't. And so we have to make sure that our lives are in alignment and in an accordance with what the instruction of Scripture here is specifically from Paul. I want to close with this final passage. It's actually out of Second Corinthians, also written by Paul. As we prepare our hearts, and that's my homework, read the, read the book of Ephesians, listen to the book of Ephesians, kind of saturate yourself in the book of Ephesians this week, so that next week when we start talking about the armor, that like you'll go, oh, that's why that's important. That's why that's, that's how that is connected, and you'll start drawing those lines of, right, it's like an investigator with the string on the, 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 the board, right? That's why those things are supported or encouraged by each other. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 3 through 5. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it, dis- make it obedient to Christ. We make it obedient to Christ. When we come to the armor of God, this is, this is the goal. It's to know what those tools are, what, those, what that armament is. What those weapons are, they're not carnal weapons. They're spiritual weapons. They're weapons that are powerful and effective when they are placed in the hands in a complete way of believers who submit themselves to God's plan, His purpose, His authority, to the unity of the body, to this new family and to living their lives in a way that honors and glorifies God. Can I tell you, if, if we would be that kind of church, watch out. Watch out. The church in Ephesus and those seven churches in in that region were considered and are considered the birthplace of Christianity as we know it. Jerusalem was where the council was. Antioch was that rogue church that started sending out missionary journeys. But it was here in Ephesus, in Colossae, in Galatia, in all of these communities where really the church was birthed. It's in what's now known as Turkey. Turkey is less than 1% Christian. Why? Because they didn't keep reading Paul's letter and saying, this is important for us. Woe to us that we would get comfortable and say, we're okay. We're good. It's all right. You can let that slide. That attitude, that inclination of that heart, of the heart, that thought, That my idea about who God is in my life. That when we let those things slide. We start walking down a similar road. And maybe not in the next generation. Or the next generation. But years and decades and centuries from now. If the Lord tarries. That people would look back at us and go. Oh that used to be a Christian nation. That used to be a Christian people. There used to be Christian churches in that place. But not anymore. If we will heed the words of Paul and submit ourselves to the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ, that will not be our story. But we've got to take our stand. Let's stand together. Invite the worship team to come. This is one of those, I want to even say one of those messages. Because it's not about the sermon, it's about the word of God. This is a passage of the word of God and a point of God's word that requires a response from us. And it's not a raising of hands, necessarily. It's a requirement and a response that says, when I walk out those doors today, I have a decision to make. I have to choose if that's where I'm living my life and how I'm living my life as part of the body of Christ or not or not and then it the work falls to you the work falls to you what do i need to address what do i need to correct so that when i strap on the armor i'm not dangerous i'm effective let's pray father god this morning i ask that by your mighty spirit that you would touch hearts and minds today Lord, that a letter written to a group of people 2,000 years ago is just as effective and just as appropriate for us today. The culture and the context is different, but the message is clear. And God, I pray in those places where we've given us ourselves permission to slack, per- permission to slide, to let things go a little bit here and a little bit there, to harbor things in our hearts and minds, to allow things to fester, Lord, where the unity of the spirit and the unity of the body has been compromised in even our own lives. God, that we would be empowered to take the steps we need to bring redemption and reconciliation. That we would submit ourselves to your lordship and your authority in our lives. That we would be an effective church as we stand together. Jesus' name. Our prayer team is available. If you'd like to pray with someone for anything whatsoever, they'd love to pray with you. They're available at the back. Let's close and worship together. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Just as I am, I come. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.